Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Amen. Amen. In Second Chronicles, chapter 29, it's a story of a king by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was raised up by God undoubtedly to be used powerfully to do something in his day that would turn the tide of apostasy and declension. And uh, when we look at this particular story, it's, it's evident that God did something extraordinary in his day. It's an Old Testament story, I realize that. It has to do with Israel, the temple system of that time. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, we're told that the, the sacrificial systems, the temple and all its accoutrements is a shadow and a copy of heavenly things. So in other words, we know today that we're not to worship in a temple. We are the temple, right? We're the temple of God. Individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, as his people, we're the temple. So it's not about a building, it's not about a denomination, but it is about a people who have decided to follow Jesus and walk together in one accord, seeking God for his will and purposes to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this story, we see some extraordinary measures that were taken by this king to bring God's people back to him again to restore righteousness and peace and prosperity to the land. But here were some extreme measures that he took to be able to see things turn back to the way God had intended it to occur. And we look at this and we see that during this time in particular that it was really a very, very difficult time. It was a time of apostasy. It was a time of godliness with a form but no power. And sadly, there have been times in church history and even now where this is the same today. It's, it's happening here today again when the spirituality of God's people so decays that religious ritual and formality end up becoming cheap substitutes for fervent worship and authentic devotion to God. We're living in a time, and when we're at that season, when we're looking at things around the world, and we, we know God is moving mightily, better, probably more so than ever before. More people are coming to Jesus than ever before in history. But when we still look at things, we know that there's much more that God wants to do. Jesus told us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I look around, I see a lot of places where his will is not being done on earth. So that tells me there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I believe that when we trust in the word of the Lord and when we call on his name, that he will answer us and he will give us the desire of his heart so that the things that are important to him end up replacing our own values and our own desires. And we take up our cross and follow him and we put his kingdom priorities first in our life. And when we do that, that's the beginning of revival. 
It's a lifestyle. It's something that we're called into. And by and large today, when we look at the church, it's vastly different than what we read about in the book of Acts, isn't it? Vastly different than what we read about. There's so much need for God's power and presence to be declared, to be manifested on the earth. God wants to do so much. We need an awakening is what we need. It's not going to be, you know, better church growth formulas or more technological approaches to ministry that's going to shift things. It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be the word of God being preached once again uncompromisingly. An undiluted, unadulterated presentation of the gospel that digs beneath the surface, that prods even our own hearts and deals with the pride, deals with the lukewarmness, deals with the things in our life that are causing us to walk in offense, causing us to walk in disunity with our brothers and sisters, causing us to believe lies, causing us to not step into that place of authority and power where we go out and bring change as those who are truly walking and like Jesus walked on the earth. We're not called to be defeated. We go through battles, absolutely, but we're called to win the battles. We're called to overcome. We're called to prevail with a head and not the tail. We're more than conquerors, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When Hezekiah assumed the throne of Judah, the spirituality of the nation had deteriorated to a pitiful state. Hezekiah's father was his predecessor. His name was King Ahaz. And he plunged the nation into, a, a, into just a terrible state of darkness, immorality, and idolatry. We read in 2 Chronicles 28 the eulogy of his life. And this is what it says regarding Ahaz. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Have you, have you noticed that with some people? With some people, trouble, difficulty drives them closer to God. For other people, it drives them away from God. And they become even more or increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That's what happened to Ahaz. And it says he offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Damascus or Syria have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and he took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his father, to anger. Wow. He was a bad dude. And the Bible tells us that God said enough is enough. I'm not going to put up with any more. And it's interesting because God's plan to turn the tide of apostasy is not to come and to just wipe everyone out, even though we think, wow, that'd be sometimes that's what we would like to do, right? When we see people doing what they do, especially when it affects us personally. But the truth is God raised up a righteous king. Yeah. And God sent this king 
to implement some very important steps of action under his executive order when he assumed the throne that would result in the people turning back to God and a reprieve from judgment, many being impacted and affected by his actions. The Bible tells us that in this time of apostasy, when Ahaz was ruling, that no one spoke up. No one said anything. Was there not a righteous remnant? Wasn't there a voice of dissent? Is there not someone who would challenge the king regarding his course of action? But unfortunately, not even the religious leaders challenged him. And we read in 2 Chronicles 29 verse 11 that Hezekiah charges the Levites and he says this, My sons, do not be negligent now. In other words, he was implying that the priests and Levites had shirked their responsibility. They were careless, complacent, and cowardly. If you look at one translation, the New Living, it says, My dear Levites, do not neglect your duties any longer. Don't neglect your duties any longer. You know, Neglect, silence, passivity is the enemy of kingdom advancement. What God desires to do requires a people that will stand up and will contend. We have to take it by force is what we're told. We have to do what God has required us to do. And we will see things change. We will see things shift. When you look at this story, you know, the first thing that Hezekiah did, it's really amazing, is the temple entrance that had been shut closed, he went and he unsealed it. The first thing he did was say, look, we need access into the presence of God. The first thing that we must do is get back into the presence of God. We've got to be a people who know the presence of God, who walk in the presence of God, that know how to live in the presence of God, who will press into his presence, who will seek his presence, who will pray, who will walk in the light, will walk in righteousness of people that know what it takes to get and live in the, back into the presence of God. The second thing that he did, and I'm just giving a brief overview, we'll go into this in greater detail in the next few weeks, is he purged and cleansed the temple. He took out those things that didn't belong there, and he restored the things that should have been there. And that's exactly where many of us are, isn't it? There's some things that we're hanging on to, some things that are, we are, are, are in our lives, present in our lives that shouldn't be there. And then there's other things that we need to restore. The last thing, after the house of God had been set in order, they sent out runners, or in other words, evangelists. And the evangelists went out in the streets and the highways and the byways and they proclaimed the word of God. And they called the people in their nation, in their cities, to come back to God. But I want us to notice that before they went out and did this, there was something that had to take place corporately. Now, I'm not saying that we... Are obviously, we, we are in the new covenant. It's very different. We're not restoring a physical house. But 
we are, in a sense, needing to restore some things in our lives. And even though we may be effective to a certain measure and a certain degree in our evangelistic efforts, in seeing God do miracles and bringing people into the kingdom, there's still a level that I believe God is calling us to that requires a deeper place of consecration. If you look at, we see that God used this king amazingly to bring back a nation, to wake up a nation. God used him powerfully. And really, what we're talking about is revival. So revival, of course, we, we can't necessarily see that term in the scripture, but we do read there, there are prayers that, you know, the prophets and others cry out, revive us again. Revive us, restore us. So I just want us to look at a definition of revival. We have a PowerPoint for this. Revival is the overwhelming sense of God's presence that falls powerfully on a Christian people and who have become dead and lethargic in their spiritual life. Reviving those elements of Christian faith that God intended to be normal for his church. Charles Finney said, a revival presupposes a declension. A revival of religion, he called it, presupposes a declension. Meaning that if we say, if we confess, if we acknowledge that we need revival, then we're saying that there's something in us that needs revived. Yes. You don't revive a healthy person, do you? An active person, you wouldn't revive that person, but someone who's waning, someone who is weakening, someone who perhaps is even on the verge of death, that is the type of person that you would want to revive. And so when we say we're wanting revival, we must understand what we're actually declaring is we're dead. We're on the verge of dying at least. Like the church in Revelation 3 where he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Strengthen that which remains. There's a sense in which God is saying, I want to bring you back to life. But so many are just content with their lifestyles. They're content with how they're living, what they're doing. Even many Christians are just content going to church on Sunday, showing up, doing whatever. That, to me, is boring. I would rather go and party and sin than live like that. That is boring religion. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a personal relationship with all you are is a church-going person who's ne who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, there's so much more. Don't just try to be a good person. Try to be a better person or, a you know, to reform yourself. God wants you to know him, to know his power, to be alive in the spirit. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And Paul cried out, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Yes, I want to know that. Yeah. We're going to have to come into some of that fellowship of his sufferings too. 
if we're going to know the power of his resurrection. Well, God is looking for a people who will stand up and contend for restoration of normal Christianity. Do you know what? The vast majority of of what is the Christian experience in particularly the Western nations is subpar. It's not, it's not what God intends. Read the book of Acts. That's what he wants. And even beyond that. Even beyond that. And God wants to restore that. Let's just look at some characteristics of revival. When God's overwhelming presence falls on his people, there are seven characteristics, I believe, that seem to be common to all major awakenings in history. <coughs> Number one. Worship becomes fresh and vibrant. Worship becomes fresh and vibrant. You don't have to stir people up. You don't have to prod them. They worship. They do it. Because they're alive. Every living thing bears fruit if it's healthy. If you are not bearing fruit, if I'm not bearing fruit, there's a health issue. There's an issue with a lack of life. Secondly, there's a conviction of sin on a return to holiness. When we talk about revival in many places today, and the fact is that there are many people that are still in great bondage. <coughs> bondage to sin, bondage to the powers of the enemy, bondage to sickness and disease. Listen, when you are free, you're free indeed. God can heal. God can deliver. God can save. And I'm telling you, there has to be a restoration, a conviction of realizing that you're not right with God. That will happen when revival is truly occurring. Thirdly, selfless Christian love. Selfless Christian love comes alive again. We just begin to love people. We just begin to love people. Because the love of God is shed abroad or poured abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's his love in us. So when we're alive with Jesus, we begin to love people. Fourthly, there's new excitement in serving God. Both in witnessing to the lost and in ministering to one another. How can we not want to tell others about Jesus if we really know him and know what we've experienced, the value of it, we're going to want to share it. I think about those four lepers that discovered the great wealth in the days of Elisha and how they said, it's not right that we just keep and hoard all this to ourselves. we got to go let others know. And that's what the gospel is like. It is that pearl of great price, and it is something that we're told to give away to others. We've inherited the bank, guys. We've got everything, and it's not right that we just keep it to ourselves. People need to know. And when we're truly alive and we're revived, we'll do it. The next one, please. (coughs) Prodigals. Is that it? No, sorry. There's an unquestioning belief in and obedience to the word of God. People begin to believe the word when revival happens historically. That's what takes place. It's all of a sudden, you know, you've read it and you maybe don't understand it or you don't believe it. But then all of a sudden you read it and you go, oh my gosh, that's true. And I believe it. 
And you not only believe it, but you obey it. You begin to do it. You begin to follow through on it. We know the Bible says, pray without ceasing, correct? Yeah. And we read that. But if we're not obeying it, we really don't believe it. Because faith without works is dead. If we really believe it, we're going to do it. We're going to make it a priority in our life. Because it's God's priority. A deep passion for prayer. There's new and unequivocal battles launched against the stronghold of Satan. I said seven characteristics. There's eight there. Eight's a better number. It's a number of new beginnings. A new and unequivocal battle launched against the strongholds of Satan. When you are revived, guess what? You see the enemy for who he is and what he's doing, perhaps in your own life and in the lives of others, and you go, not on my watch. It's not on my watch. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to allow this to continue. He is going to be challenged. It's like that spirit of David when he saw Goliath and the Philistine and what he was doing. The spirit of God came upon him and David said, no way, no more. And he went after him and he took him down. That's what happens with the revived people. I'm not going to put up with the enemy. I'm not going to allow him to walk all over me, walk all over my family, walk all over my friends. I'm not going to allow him to do all the stuff that he's doing. I am going to challenge him. I'm going to go after him. I'm going after the juggler. That's what happens when you're really revived. Stages of revival. Stages of revival. There are various stages as we progress into revival that take place. Let's just look at some of these. In a day when the forces of evil are blatant, there is a sense of deep dissatisfaction that begins to grip the hearts, usually not of the majority, but of a small remnant. Historically, it's usually not like the whole church, all of the Christians. It's a remnant that says, you know what? I'm dissatisfied. There used to be a song we sang a few years ago. I don't know if you guys sang it over here. And it says, there must be more than this. There must be more than this. Oh, breath of God, breathe on us. There must be more. There's more. What we're experiencing is not God's full supply. He wants us to experience it. And when the enemy is working overtime to try to delay your destiny, to try to block your blessing, to try to hinder your harvest, and we stand there and let him go at it without even challenging him. Because we're passive. We're weak. We're asleep. And we need to wake up. God wants to bring revival. And there is a remnant arising, even in this house, that is saying, I'm going for it. I'm going to go after it. I'm not just going to be a Sunday Christian. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to press in. I'm going to live a holy life. 
I'm going to do the things that God has called me to do because I know that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I know that in due harvest, I, in due time, I will reap the harvest if I faint not because God is not a man that he would lie. If we do what he's called us to do and we don't give up and we don't give in and we keep believing and we keep pressing and we keep moving forward, we will not be disappointed. He will answer us. He will reign righteousness and it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and reigns righteousness how many seek him up to a point but he says seek me until I come and reign righteousness within a core group of remnant a vision comes alive regarding what could be what could be and a protracted ministry of prayer is birthed what could be is this the way it is no but what could be God, show us what could it look like? What does it look like? What does your plan look like? What does your promises look like? What is it that you want to do? Show me. And again, it's a remnant. Not everyone is willing to pay the price. In the setting of prayer, Concerted, persistent prayer. God's spirit begins to manifest powerfully and supernaturally. All of a sudden, things just begin to happen. All of a sudden, your prayers just start getting answered. All of a sudden, healing begins to happen. All of a sudden, miracles and things that you've been praying for certain people, and they end up getting saved. Right. Amen. Because in that place of pressing in and persisting, God says, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to answer you. I'm going to move. And it's not, it's not like we're twisting God's arm. Because that's what some people think prayer is. It's about the preparation of us. Yeah. God's willing. He's ready to do it. He wants to do it. Now he says, ask of me. Ask of me. I'll give you the nations. Seek me. And I will reveal my ways to you. I will show you my power and my glory. Hallelujah. An overwhelming sense of conviction is felt. And believers begin to seek and implore God for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to one another. It's amazing. When revival happens, if you've really studied it and you've really seen it, we've seen it, all of a sudden people start confessing sin. They're like, oh my gosh, this is what's happening. I'm not saying publicly always, but I'm saying people begin to realize they're not right with God. And this is wrong. This is, I can't do this. I can't go on like this. I've got to get this out. I've got to clear the stage. I've got to do what is needed here. And I can't stand in odds with this person. I can't have this grudge or these bad feelings toward that person anymore. I've got to get this thing taken care of. Right. And reconciliation and relationships begin to take place. Because the enemy is a, is a divisor, isn't he? He's one who causes division and separation. That's what he wants. A renewed, prodigals and sinners start to come back. Prodigals and sinners start to come back. All of a sudden now, boom, people start getting saved. I was reading about the, the revival in Wales and within 10 weeks, in this one city in Wales, 5,000 people came to Christ in 10 weeks. Yeah. 10 weeks. 5,000 people. And this were not people that were, you know, de-churched, meaning 
Yeah, they were Christians and they just weren't going to church anymore. These were coal miners. These were people that had filthy mouths, filthy minds, many of them. These were rough and tough people. And God did an amazing work. Over 100,000 people were saved in a very short period of time, which was 10% of the population. 10% of the population because of what God did. There's a renewed commitment to ministry on the part of all true Christians, resulting in great social benefit and even transformation of society. What that means is this. All of a sudden, people get gripped with a sense of the urgency on the need. I can't do this. I've got to do something. I've got to move out. I've got I've to go after the loss. I've got to go to the harvest field. I've got to reach people with the gospel. And it becomes a priority in our lives. And the interesting thing, when you, we, did a, we did a seminar yesterday on discipleship. And one of the things that is so interesting about the early church is everyone that was really saved and converted in the early church was immediately given a mandate. And they came to understand this very quickly. In fact, right after they were converted. And, and that mandate was, okay, now it's your responsibility to reach people with the gospel. They didn't say to them, all right. Now that you're saved, show up to church every week, take this new Christian's class, be baptized in water. It was follow Jesus, which certainly involved discipleship. It involved baptism. It involved being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it was a sense of now God has saved me so I can go and reach other people with the gospel. And it's proven, and we read it in the book of Philemon, chapter, uh, verse number 6, that the only way we'll really ever, ever grow is if we're active in sharing our faith. There's no way we'll fully function in our discipleship if we're not active in sharing our faith. In fact, as you share your faith, you understand who the Lord is and you grow. We'll never fully become all that we're destined to be if we're not active in sharing our faith. But what about those people that have just gotten, you know, Saved and they're so on fire and, you know, we zeal without knowledge. Well, God has a way of sorting people out. He does. I was one of those zeals without knowledge people. But I'd rather have zeal without knowledge. I'd rather have a church of people that have zeal without knowledge and knowledge with no zeal. Come on. I'd rather have a little bit of wildfire than no fire. In fact, a lot of wildfire than no fire. <laughs> because God is doing a work in this day. And it's time for us to step into the fire. When we step into the fires of revival, God will purify us. He will do something. When we begin to put first the things that are important to him, his priorities, we will see amazing blessing on our efforts. God will bless us. And I want to just close right now with that. I believe that God is calling us to revival. I believe it. And again, one of the prophetic words that we received recently from a man of God who is a pastor in another state who ended up sending us a message. And, and essentially the prophetic word was this. Keep digging in. Keep moving 
in the process because in the process is where you experience the promise of God. In other words, when we read the book of Acts chapter 2, and it says, and suddenly the Holy Spirit came in, do you understand that there was a process that they were engaged in that literally prepared them for that suddenly? They were praying and seeking God in one accord in one place for 10 days when the suddenly happened. And when we stay in the process, God will move and he will do what he's promised he will do. And I'm not saying anything specific regarding what that looks like. Let's just leave it there. What I am saying is God will unfold that and reveal that to us. He'll show us what, do, what is it that I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. And one of the things he's already clearly spoken to, to us as leaders about in this church is the prayer. Getting together to really pray, really stepping up prayer. And we need to pray because we are, see the enemy is taking hostage many, many people. Sons, daughters, husbands, wives, family members, others. He's taking them hostage. And we don't negotiate with terrorists. Come on now. We kill them. Come on, we send in the special forces. And we, we take them out. No questions asked. That's what we do with terrorists. And God is saying, don't negotiate. Don't compromise. Do what I've called you to do. Let me, let that spirit, that fighting spirit that was in David, get a hold of you. Let that spirit that was in David who said, you know what? You come against me with a sword, with an army, but I come against you in the name of the Lord my God. And you uncircumcised Philistine, I'm going to kill you, cut your head off, and feed your body to the birds. Wow. Yeah, that's what David said. <laughs> that's what he said. Come on, let's stand together, please. Hallelujah. Come on, guys, don't let anything hinder what God wants to do in your life. Amen. Come on, don't, don't, don't be distracted by the enemy's schemes and strategies, his ploys, his tactics. You know, he uses distraction, he uses discouragement, and he uses division to quench the fire revival. Those are three main ways. Distraction, discouragement, and division. That's what he uses. I feel so strongly God is saying, challenge my people. Challenge my people. Because the harvest is great. The harvest is great and we need to take action. Can we come together and pray? We had 30 odd people here Sunday night, people even that are not part of this church on Wednesday night. And I share the story of Brooklyn Tabernacle. Brooklyn Tabernacle is a large church in New York City, but they didn't start off as a large church. They were a small church. They struggled. They weren't seeing growth. There was a lot of things happening that was just very trying. The pastor began to call the people to pray, and they started to pray, and things began to shift. 
people, more and more people started to come to pray. And people began to pray and they prayed and they cried out to God and they prayed and the church began to grow and people began to get saved and miracles began to take place on every level, at all level. And now they have a weekly prayer service where literally almost everyone who attends that church comes to it. In fact, they say that their midweek prayer service, there's often more people there for that than there are on Sunday. I'm not saying we're trying to compare ourselves with another church. We're comparing ourselves with what God is calling us to do. But it will require, and it does require, reprioritizing things in our lives. What, does, what is it going to take? You're here today, and you're fighting, and you're dealing with stuff, and it's just difficult. It's tough. You've got a veritable battle on your hand. The enemy's opposing you. Maybe you, you need a miracle in one way or the other. I'm here to tell you that God has not forsaken his people. He's not left his children. He's waiting for you to cry out to him. He's waiting for you to call upon his name, to begin to really seek him, to begin to really put his, his things first in your life. And as you do, I'm telling you, he is a rewarder. He is a rewarder he's faithful he has not forsaken you he's not left you he's not abandoned you he's not angry at you he poured his wrath out on his son so that you and I can walk in his grace and his forgiveness but we need to call out to him whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved call on his name keep calling on his name keep calling on the name of Jesus until things change and allow him to deal with your life allow him to deal with your life if there's stuff in your life that's just not right if you're complacent if you're lukewarm if you're unconcerned if you fawn from your first love if you're angry if you're bitter if you're offended it doesn't matter what it is God will change your life if you failed and you're dealing with guilt and regret over things in the past God is a father who forgives and loves and he'll raise you up and he'll restore you he's so good I just want to pray with anyone this morning who just this message is just resonating in your heart and you say yeah I want to go forward I want to pray for the spirit.